Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kauten Schabes at the Skizar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Jewish history soundbites, and this episode is coming back after we had a long series on the greatest Shanghai escape. If you missed that series, 10 parts, you may want to go and check that out um, on Jewish history soundbites, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you can access any of our episodes, archive over 400 episodes and check out from a wide array of topics you can share with your friends and family, leave a rating and a review. And now we want to go back after that long series to some regular episodes and um, back into a routine of that. And hopefully soon, I'll, well, as soon as I decide on a topic, um, we'll try to launch another longer series. It seems that the feedback I got was that it was very popular. Everyone liked it a lot, the, that format. Maybe we'll tweak the format a drop, but um, we'll hopefully get back to that. But now, for now, we have some regular episodes and great content for all of you wonderful listeners of Jewish History Soundbites. And today's topic, which I think is, uh, you know, has some relevance to to current events, is a story from the 1948 War of Independence in Israel, and specifically the Machal fighters. Machal fighters were mitnadvei chutz laaretz volunteers from outside of Israel, and there were three and a half, four thousand or so of these mitnadvim, of these volunteers who came from over 50 countries, but primarily from the United States, a little bit from South Africa, England, uh, Canada, uh, France, and and like I said, tens of other countries in much smaller numbers, um, primarily Jews from around the world, but there were even a few hundred of those three and a half or four thousand or so. Uh, so a few hundred of them were also non-Jews and they um, participated in in great, great 
courageous, heroic ways in uh, Israel's 1948 War of Independence. The Machal, it's actually, as far as I know, exists until today in the Israeli army, um, and they've loaned soldiers and, um, and people who volunteer, primarily Jews who volunteer from around the world and participate in the Israeli army. But this, the main story that I'm focusing on is, is from 1948. And the way I got to the story was there's a memorial right near my home in Beit Shemesh, which I chanced upon um, one day, uh, which is the Machal Memorial, right, right, right outside Beit Shemesh, right off the exit from, from the um, the highway, and it's a quiet, small, beautiful, respectable memorial to these Machal fighters, and um, it has the names of the ones who were killed. Um, I believe it was over a hundred of them who were killed. In fact, one of them is named Geber, and I was trying to figure out if he's related to me. I'm very Rare and uncommon name, Geberer from New York, Milton Geberer. Um, so I was trying to figure that out. And I just got curious about the whole story. So I started researching it. And, and the memorial there is very nice. And there's quite a lot of history in that area. There's the whole Shar Haggai area and the Burma Road. And I should perhaps start doing tours there, in fact, because there's so much to see of history in that area also. So if you're interested in pioneering uh, a tour over there, with me, then maybe we can try to work something out. It's also closer to my home, less travel for me than, than the regular tours I do in Yerushalayim and other places. Either way, um, it also brought to memory, um, before I lived in Beit Shemesh, so I lived in a neighborhood in Yerushalayim called Ramad Eshkol, which I assume most listeners are familiar with, and right near Ramad Eshkol is, an, is a street called Rechov Machal, and in fact, on Shabbos morning for five years, I used to walk over from Ramad Eshkol to Rehov Machal and Davin in a shul there. Um, and, and Machal is named for this Mitnadvei Chutzlar. It's named for this, it's to honor these Machal fighters. And I always thought of the symbolism in that in, in two ways. First of all, the residents of Rehov Machal, at least when I lived in Ramad Eshkol, um, were primarily American yeshiva students, married yeshiva students who were learning in the Mir or in other yeshivas in Yerushalayim. In other words, they were mitnadvei chutzlarts. They were yeshiva students who were Torah scholars who were coming to study Torah in Eretz Yisrael and, uh, and, and coming from chutzlarts. So they, they, uh, they, it was like a, a very symbolic uh, ending to the story. You have the assistance in the physical sense of fighting in the army, um, which, which you had in 1948 and also continues till today. But the the street is named for the ones in 1948. And then in the spiritual sense, the ones who live on that street are the ones who are learning Torah and also coming from Chutzlars. And the other symbolism I saw in that street is that it borders on the UNRWA headquarters, of, regional headquarters of the Yerushalayim area. And I mean, UNRWA is probably the uh, one of the top 10 corrupt institutions in human history, the UNRWA, just in case I'm mispronouncing it. Um, and, uh, and, and like, you know, an awful organization. And here it's, it's, it's on Rehov Machal. It's talking about these heroes who came to Israel to fight for Israel's independence. 
Jews who felt this Jewish sense of pride and identity and after the Holocaust and after what they had you know, gotten their, you know, their combat experience during World War II, they decided they want to go fight for the Jewish people. And there it's a reminder to the UNRWA corruption officials and the institution that's there that look, look what you can be compared to. You know, there's the heroes and then there's the opposite of heroes. Those are the two symbolisms I saw. You know, it was a long walk Shabbos morning, so I had what to think about. So I came up with this uh, over the years. In any event... Um, so I want to speak about their story, and and uh, there's been tons written about it. There's articles and books, and at least one doctorate that I'm familiar with, didn't read, but I know exists, and um, perhaps others as well. But this is one of the first and only episodes so far that the primary sources I used were actually documentaries. Um, and there's several documentaries out there. There's a bunch I saw in Hebrew as well. Um, but the, the two best ones that I saw, and I highly recommend um, for anyone who wants to further their knowledge about this story, and it's really exciting and incredible, heroic story. I can't, I can't gush enough about it. So the two documentaries that I liked the best were Boaz Devere uh, did a documentary called A Wing and a Prayer, and Nancy Sp Spielberg, whose older brother is a more famous producer and director of movies, but Nancy Spielberg does, has her own, quite a few of her own successful ones to her credit. And her uh, documentary about Machal is called Above and Beyond. So those are the two that I culled much of this episode from. And if you want to see more about the story, you can, can see those. So you have, basically you have, um, you know, by, by a good stroke of luck and Hashgach Pratis, World War II ends a few years before the establishment of the State of Israel. So you have all these Jews who served in allied armies. Let's focus on the United States Army, but it really is relevant for the British and other armies as well, militaries as well. And you have all these veterans. There's you know 550,000 American Jews, for instance. Uh, it's over half a million Jews who served in the American Army during World War II. So you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of combat veterans in literally every single unit of the military. And they have all significant experience. Some of them were officers, even senior officers, and, um, and experience in all different areas. And, um, and you also have non-Jews, like I said, as well. And, and thousands of them are recruited, either volunteer or are recruited to volunteer, um, to come and assist um, in Israel's War of Independence. Now, before I get to the details of what they did, I want to give you the assessment of David Ben-Gurion, the Prime Minister himself. He said, the Machal forces were the diaspora's most important contribution to the State of Israel. On another occasion, he specifically about, he said about someone who I'll discuss in further detail shortly, he said, Al Schwimmer was America's greatest gift to Israel. Um, and Al Schwimmer was one of the most important of the Machal people involved in this story. Um, Yitzhak Rabin, his assessment was even more uh, more blunt, which is the way Rabin spoke generally. He said, they were all we had. In other words, he gave them a lot of credit um, for what was established in the Israeli military. They came from tens of countries, like I said, uh, primarily the United States, England, Canada, South Africa was actually a, quite a large contingent from South Africa, France, and many other countries as well. 
They brought with them their World War II experience. Almost all of them were combat veterans or in some other capacity, engineering, mechanics, and uh, meteorology, doctors, all kinds of experience like that. Um, and the question is, why did they come and how are they recruited? So here the story gets interesting. Each one, and many of them tell their stories on these documentaries, and others wrote memoirs. Um, each one had a different reason for coming, but many of them, the common thread that runs through many of them, is, uh, for sure the Jewish ones, um, they came because uh, they, they, had, they saw what had happened in the Holocaust. Uh, some of them were actually in Europe and participated in the liberation itself. Others were in the Pacific, or even if they were in Europe, they didn't participate in liberation, but they had read or seen or heard. Many of them, almost all of them, were children of immigrants or grandchildren of immigrants, Jewish immigrants, and therefore they had relatives. Um, some of them in their testimonies are, are crying as they describe their own grandparents, cousins uh, who were killed um, or survived and came to the United States and told them their story, and they were horrified. Um, actually, uh, one of them uh, said something so powerful that I, I found resonated with me, is that he said um, that uh, he saw what had happened to the Jewish people in the Holocaust. And he said, I'm Jewish, and I'm part of the Jewish people, and it's just an accident of history that I ended up being born in the United States, having a great education, and and my participation in the war was fighting and defeating the Nazis, and we didn't sustain the Holocaust. Said, what, what, what makes me special? Did I do something special to deserve that? Does that make me separate from the Jewish people? I'm not part of the Jewish people's destiny. So he said, the least I could do was that when the Jewish people's in danger again, and there's some way I could help, so that I can lend my World War II combat experience to that help and, and be there for them, be there for the Jewish people so that another Holocaust doesn't happen, which many thought would happen. There's five Arab armies who planned on invading Israel as soon as the British mandate ended in May 1948. And there was a great danger that the 600,000 or so Jews living in Palestine at the time would be completely decimated and wiped out. And the Arab armies were openly saying they're going to finish off what Hitler started. And, um, and, there, and, and there was this, this sense that you can really contribute something special in this, in this context. Um, others said because, you know, they had a sense of adventure, uh, they wanted to go. Others said because they wanted to continue, um, you know, doing what they were good at, which was, you know, what they had gained experience in during World War II. Um, so there, there's all kinds of reasons, but the primary reason was, was this sense of Jewish belonging of one of them said, uh, Jews are fighting back they're, 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 And he said, you want to be part, he wants to be part of that. He wants to be the Jews getting together and fighting back and defending themselves just like, um, he did as a Jew during World War II, um, in, in his, in his as a soldier in a capacity. Um, so how are they recruited? So they're were recruited. They were the Haganah, the Israeli, you know, the underground uh, defense of the Yishuv, uh, pre-state. They had sent agents and had offices in in New York and in other places in L.A. and other places in the United States where they tried to contact people like this. They had lists of 
of experienced pilots and other uh, uh, Jews who were in senior officer positions who seemed to fit the profile who might be willing to volunteer. And they actively recruited them. They tried to find them and track them down. There was also word of mouth. Once one of them got involved, he tried to use his old army military contacts, Air Force contacts, Navy contacts, to try to recruit friends of his or contacts of his to see if they'd want to join in this experience as well. Um, especially in the Al Schwimmer story, which I'm going to get to. So the Al Schwimmer actually went around and recruited people. He assembled a team of pilots and radio operators and engineers and uh, and all kinds of things like that, which basically formed the nucleus of the Israeli Air Force. And he, he went around and recruited them. He was not a Haganah man. He was an American Jewish uh, um, uh, um, you know, war veteran. Um, but he, he, he did it himself. He, he initiated and then reached out to the Haganah and told them he has this team that's willing to, to, to do some work. Um, one of the um, stories I bumped into, uh, encountered, was a non-Jew who uh, grew up in, in like, uh, you know, middle America, somewhere in like uh, in Wisconsin or something like that. I forget where exactly, Michigan, Mich- Michigan or Wisconsin. And um, he, he came from a Scandinavian background. His father was an immigrant from Norway. His mother was an immigrant from Denmark. And he had grown up and was born and grown up in this, in this Midwest somewhere. And, um, and, uh, and he, he was a pilot during World War II, combat pilot, fighter pilot in, in Europe for the American Air Force. And, uh, and he's in Columbia University after the war um, trying to become a poet. So he's studying writing and literature. And he's eating breakfast in a diner on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, and he's approached by someone at his table and said, can I speak to you for a minute? And he said, yeah. I said, you're XYZ. Well, you were a fighter pilot during World War II. He said, yes, I was. So he said, well, would you like to uh, come to Palestine and fight for to establish a Jewish state? We need help with pilots and an air force. So the guy's like, what in the world? I'm not even Jewish. How'd you find me? He said, well, you're on our list. So he said, your list? Who are you? He said, we're from the Haganah. Um, and how did I get onto your list? He said, well, we, you know, we have this list of experienced pilots who you seem to fit the profile and we want to know if you're interested. So this guy's like really taken aback. So he says, uh, so he says, okay, um, when would you like an answer? Like when, when do you need me to, when do you need me to, to, to come up with an answer? When, when would you want me to start? He said, well, tonight would be ideal. They said, and I. So he said, "Well, I assume this is volunteer work." They said, "Yes, this would be in a volunteer capacity." Um, and then he said to him, "Well, look, I have a Norwegian background, and I love fly fishing. So, is there f- opportunities for fly fishing in Israel? Be- in you know, then it was Palestine; it wasn't Israel yet, um, because I don't want to miss out on my hobby." So this Haganah guy goes, "The best." There's the best fly fishing. You will have plenty of fly fishing. <laughs> so he said, all right, I'll go. In the end, he went. He participated in this. He was one of those pilots. He was so enamored with the whole country and the whole Israeli people and experience. And he also happened to fall in love with an Israeli a Jewish girl who actually, before she was secular, she came from a Hasidic home and background. Um, either way, this guy converted to Judaism and um, and married this woman and and uh, raised a Jewish family in Israel. Interesting ending to the story. I forgot his name. There's a lot of names in this in these uh, stories that I read. But that's how they recruited them. 
Um, so the the they serve in all kinds of capacities. Um, in in first of all, in way before the state when it's still the British um, uh, mandate and there's the British blockade against Jewish immigration, trying to prevent Jewish immigration. So there's navy. Um, Navy veterans who captain ships that the Haganah purchases and they serve as uh, the ship staff for some of these ships trying to illegally smuggle in uh, um, Holocaust survivors from DP camps into the into Palestine in the period before the establishment of the state of Israel. They serve as officers in the Haganah. They serve in, in training capacities, doctors, nurses, engineering, mechanics, pilots, um, all, all of the specialized areas or senior positions that you needed experience and talent um, for. Many of the Haganah had plenty of, 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 of guerrilla warfare experience. Many of them even had combat experience because many of them served in the British Army during World War II. Um, and they were trained by, they were British trained. So the Haganah had plenty of trained officers and, and enlisted um, soldiers. They were very well trained fighting force. But that was primarily in the more um, basic rank and file positions, such as infantry, artillery, um, maybe even armor like tanks, um, and even officers in those positions. They did have training. But in more specialized areas, they, they, they really did not have enough uh, especially in numbers. They didn't have a lot of experience. They didn't have a lot of people, uh, personnel to be able to fill those capacities. So because the Machal fighters filled primarily these specialized roles, captaining ships, the Navy, the Air Force, doctors, nurses, training officers, um, engineering, um, all these types of uh, meteorologists, like I said, um, these more senior positions and more specialized positions and commanding operations, um, strategic positions, all those, all those, uh, all those types of capacities. So their their talent and experience far outweighed their numbers. We look at the numbers. So the Haganah had um, different 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 times, different uh, numbers, but had you know they may have had up to 70,000 troops. The Palmach, which was the elite striking force of the Haganah, was another 2,000. The Eitzel, the Irgun, was another three, 4,000. And then when the State of Israel was established and many Holocaust survivors started arriving, so it swelled the numbers of the of the Tzahal, of the IDF, and it was over 100,000 soldiers. So you may think, all right, the Machal was only 3,500 uh, or so um, fighters, so what, you know, it's not a major contribution because, it's, you know, it's one-twentieth of their total fighting force, even less. Well, that's not true because they serve in such specialized positions and such senior positions and such expertise and training others and leading others and essentially forming the entire Air Force and Navy. Um, so in, 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 in they, they, their influence and their impact on the entire Israeli military and their fighting far outweighed their numbers. I mean, it was a decisive um, uh, impact. Um, the, uh, the, the, um, you know, one of them described how much it meant to him to, to participate in this. He said that he fought, he was a pilot, um, and he fought for, for Israel. He helped establish their air force. 
And he said, as he was leaving a few months later, or a year later, whatever it was, when it was over, most of them returned to the United States and other countries. There were a few who remained, stayed, and um, lived in Israel afterwards, and almost all of them went back home. Um, and, uh, and one of them described, he said that when he left, he was at the ship dock to leave, and he saw a ship um, in Haifa, uh, you know, arriving with Holocaust uh, refugees coming from the DP camps, arriving in Israel at the end of the War of Independence, and the way they came off, and the way they 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 knelt to the ground and kissed the ground, and and were crying. And he said, "This is why I came. This is what I came for to enable people like this to be to be here and to be safe here." Um, you have to understand the context at the time. This is the British mandate is coming to an end. The British uh, handed their mandate back to the United Nations, November 29, 1947. Of course, the United Nations votes on the partition plan, um, which the Jewish agency and the representing the Yishuv, representing the Jewish settlement in, in Palestine, they accept the partition plan. The, the Arabs reject the partition plan. They don't accept it. And they decide they're going to go to war. As soon as the British leave on May 15th, 1948, the British are wrapping up their affairs. They are going to pack out. And, uh, and, and these uh, both local Arabs, which eventually came to be called Palestinians, and five Arab surrounding armies from surrounding countries, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, which didn't even share a border with with Israel, but still decided to declare war on it and send divisions to to fight it. They were going to go in and destroy Israel before it gets off the ground and uh, and uh, and make sure there's no partition plan. The entire country will be Arab. That was the plan. So as the British are wrapping up their affairs here, the Haganah realizes they have to have a real army in place, not just an underground. They have to really create the mechanisms of a real established army with army discipline and numbers and strength and, of course, guns, ammunition um, and air force and all that. So there's, you know, a big, big, you know, a lot of trouble. And they don't have a lot of guns and ammunition and tanks and planes. Now, a lot of these Arab countries did. Of course, the local Arabs did not have much either, but we're talking about Egypt had a proper air force. They had British Spitfires. Um, Syria had a proper air force. Iraq had somewhat of an air force. Um, so the, the, uh, there was a, a big threat to, to uh, in numbers, of course, that, and, and, and there was also the, a arms embargo. You were not allowed to, to, it was hard for the Haganah to obtain weapons. There was an arms embargo. The U.S., renewed the Neutrality Act. You were not allowed to get involved in any wars and anywhere else. So anyone who shipped or sent or sold weapons to the Middle East, um, they faced uh, criminal, uh, you know, faced criminal charges. It was breaking the law. Um, the British definitely didn't want any arms to go there. They did not want Jewish immigration. They didn't want to anger the Arabs. They wanted to make sure that their two major assets in the Middle East which was the Suez Canal in Egypt and oil in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, they stayed safe. Now, both of those things, the Suez Canal and oil, were both in Arab hands. So the British definitely had an incentive to be on the Arab side, and therefore they also did not want, to, they did not want too many weapons to end up in the Haganah hands. So that's the context. 
So these Machal fighters come in to serve their role. By the way, when they integrated into the Israeli army, there were tensions with Israelis. They didn't always get along with the Israelis. These were, these were Americans who very often were officers, senior officers, had amazing combat experience in the Pacific Theater or in Europe during World War II. And the Israelis see them as uh, foreigners, and they, they, they say, well, 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 we're the Israelis, we're the bosses, we have to be the ones in command, and they, they, they'll help out where we tell them to help out, right? So there's this little bit of tension there, but things worked out. Um, but if we focus uh, for a few minutes on where their impact was most seen, was in the establishment of the Israeli Air Force. The Machal fighters in the Air Force were so dominant, they were basically the entire Air Force. There were almost no Israelis in the Israeli Air Force um, in, the, in 1948. It was almost entirely comprised of built lock, stock, and barrel by Machal fighters. It was the only area of Israeli military that was so dominated by Machal fighters was the Air Force, and the, the formation of the Israeli Air Force is almost completely to the credit of the Machal fighters. In so much so, in fact, that Hebrew was not used in the Israeli Air Force during the War of Independence. The language of the Israeli Air Force during the 1948 War of Independence was entirely in English. And that's because of the predominance of the Machal fighters in, in the Air Force. So that's just an interesting... Israeli pilots were rare. Um, Azer Weitzman, who later on was the president of the State of Israel, prominent politician, nephew of Chaim Weitzman. So he was one. Of, he was the head of the... You know, he, he's, the, the considered the commander of the first commander of the Israeli Air Force, um, so he he uh, he was a RAF trained pilot during World War II, so he was one of the rare ones. Modi Alon, who was killed during the War of Independence, was another one also trained by the RAF uh, during World War II. There's very few others. Almost all the other pilots were were uh, American, British, South African, quite a few also. Um, so the the uh, the many of them were. Um, had flown combat missions in Europe, in in the Pacific, over Japan, in the Navy, in the Marines, um, as fighter pilots, bombers. Many of them were veterans of ATC, Air Transport Command, flying cargo missions across uh, areas of um, in the Southeast Asia or in Europe or in uh, in in from America to Europe. There was uh, there was uh, many of them. Al Schwimmer and his 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 crew were mostly um, veterans of ATC, of Air Transport Command. Now, many of the planes that uh, many of the equipment that that uh, that the Israeli military obtained was through an incredible story in Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was the, pretty much the only country in the world. And it was through Soviet connections. It was actually through Stalin through a short period of time. Um, but this Czechoslovakia connection was crucial to the development of the Haganah into a fighting force because the Haganah didn't have enough weapons. And Czechoslovakia was the only country that was for a time that was willing to sell Israel weapons um, and the Haganah bought these weapons. They fundraisers, they had to have funding to buy them and they bought ammunition and guns and heavy guns and heavy machine guns and artillery and, and, and missiles and planes, Messerschmitts and... and, uh, and um, and they had people trained there. People actually go down to Czechoslovakia, they're able to train there, so that was even more. So they needed to also get these weapons from Czechoslovakia to Israel. That was a big challenge as well. But what I want to but what I want to mention is the irony was that many of the supplies that Czechoslovakia was selling them. After World War II, the world was 
overflowing with army surplus materials. And you can buy stuff on the black market, which the Haganah did as well, and it was all over the place, which we'll talk about too. It's part of how Al Schwimmer was able to purchase planes on behalf of the uh, Israeli Air Force too. So the, the, uh, the, but the Czechoslovakian um, weapons that they were selling the Haganah was primarily German. German planes, Messerschmitts, lousy Messerschmitts, not the good ones that the uh, that the Luftwaffe used, but pretty junky ones that were that were made in Czechoslovakian factories. But they were nevertheless they were Messerschmitts. The uh, guns, the bullets, uniforms, helmets were all German. So I think this is pretty much unknown that um, the Israeli army fighting the Arabs in the War of Independence. We're fighting with German weapons, uh, German bullets. I remember, I remember hearing another testimony from an Israeli, Israeli testimony of a, a, a member of the Israeli army. He was a Holocaust survivor who had recently arrived in the country. And he came right off the boat and right away was drafted into the army. And he's sitting in a bunker in the north in the Galil with this new unit and and they didn't they had all they had was a few old rifles and the iraqi uh army was advancing on them um and they didn't know how they would defend themselves and one day a truck pulls up to their position and says we just came from haifa there was just a a delivery from czechoslovakia of weapons and here you are you have machine guns and rifles and thousands of rounds of ammunition I think he actually said there's no ammunition yet. That will come tomorrow. So they had like a day. They had just guns. Uh, the ammunition eventually came as well. And he said this Holocaust survivor describing it, he notices the German Nazi eagle and swastika engraved into the gun. These were German guns. They're fighting with German guns. And the Machal fighters described how they're sitting in Messerschmitts with German helmets and German uniforms he said he ripped off the German eagle, the, the wings on 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 his on his uh, lapels because he just didn't feel comfortable wearing it. But that's what they're fighting with. Now, the even bigger irony is is that most of the Egyptian air force was Spitfires. And one of the British main air force bases in uh, World War II was the Mediterranean when they were fighting in Crete and in Malta and in, and in uh, you know, Sicily and Cyprus and all the Nazi areas of the of the uh, German, you know, fighting these battles of the Mediterranean. So they, they're they very often based off of, of Egypt. Um, so they had all these British weapons. So the Allied weapons of World War II end up by the Arabs, and the Nazi weapons of World War II end up by the Israelis. And the Israelis are fighting with German weapons against the British weapons of the Arabs. So just a funny irony of history. Um, so um, this this Al Schwimmer story is that he uh, decides to get involved. He's he goes ahead and simply purchases planes on on an open market on on the army surplus markets. He purchases them, then refits them, and then smuggles them first to Panama. And he pretends that it's a Panama National Airline. That's how he gets them out of the country. He basically created a fictitious airline. Then he flies them from Panama to Czechoslovakia. He bought. Uh, C-46 transport planes and um, and light aircraft and and B-17 bombers. Eventually, he bought three B-17 bombers. One he bought straight from the American Air Force. 
He, he told them he's going to use it for scrap metal, and then he literally smuggled it off the base and flew it out of the country. And then he bought another two B-17 bombers from a non-Jew in Florida who had them for sale somehow. Um, you, I mean, you have to hear these stories. They're like, they're almost like impossible to be true. But the funny thing is that they are true. So he buys all these transport planes, which he's going to use both to transport the weapons from Czechoslovakia to Israel. That's how they brought them with Al Schwimmer's planes. And then they're used in Israel to bring more weapons and to transport things. And also even as improvised bombers. They put bombers in transport planes and they kind of like rolled them out of the plane um, when they reached their target. Um, so that's, that's an incredible operation. Plus he assembled this whole team. He, he brought all these friends of his involved and found all these pilots who were willing to work with him. And they flew the transport planes to Czechoslovakia. Then they trained in Czechoslovakia and refitted the planes and then brought them all to um, to Israel where they fought in the Israeli Air Force. So Al Schwimmer basically is the father of the Israeli Air Force. He built it and he also brought all the weapons to Israel and got them all their planes. Um, not single-handedly. He had a, quite a successful team doing it. Um, one of the greatest stories of the whole War of Independence is there's this um, is there's this the, the first four Messerschmitts are assembled in Ekron when they arrive um, in the C forty six transports, and they arrived in pieces and they had to, had to be reassembled. Their engines hadn't been hadn't been run, and their they hadn't practiced firing from these Messerschmitt fighter planes, and. And um, there's this, uh, uh, one of the pilots, a fellow by the name of Leo, um, get his name here, Lou, Lou Lenart, excuse me, Lou Lenart, he, um, he, he, he has this plan to bomb and destroy the, the Egyptian Air Force on the ground um, in El Arish. They'll fly these Messerschmitts down. And he's approached by an Israeli officer um, that night, and he says the Egyptian... Uh, an Egyptian column, a division, um, has is advancing on Tel Aviv. They're less than 10 miles from Tel Aviv. If you fly the Messerschmitts to El Arish, there won't be a place to return to tomorrow. They're going to be ready in Tel Aviv. And you, ha you have to do is to bomb this, this column, this advancing column instead. So they get into these four, air the four airplanes. That's the entire Israeli Air Force at the time. Lou Leonard, this American... Um, interesting story, actually. He was actually born in Hungary in a town called Il. He's one of the key pilots in this story. He's, uh, he was born in Il in Hungary, where the Ismach Maisha was from. His parents immigrated to New York with his family as a child. And then he's drafted into the U.S. military during World War II. He's a Marine pilot in the Pacific. He fights in the Battle of Okinawa um, and, then and then fighting over uh, the skies of Japan. Um, and then he's one of the main recruits of Al Schwimmer. Goes through Panama with this fictitious airline, then on to Czechoslovakia for training and loading. He and a group of pilots insisted on leaving Czechoslovakia early because they wanted to help out Israel. And then he leads this four-plane squadron on the Egyptian army advancing on Tel Aviv. Um, two of the other pilots were Israeli. Um, Ezer Weitzman, I believe, was one of the pilots. I think Modi Alon. And then this guy, Eddie Cohen, who was South African. Another Machal fighter. And Lou Lennard describes how he turned the plane upside down to be able to dive bomb the Egyptian column when they found it. So they let release their bombs from these fighter planes, essentially. 
and then they go back for a second run to strafe the column with machine guns, and they do that twice. And by the second and third runs, they're going through anti-aircraft fire. In fact, this Eddie Cohn's plane was downed, and he was killed, unfortunately. And Lou Lennart describes that he's going into this four planes against an entire Egyptian division. He said he said Shema Yisrael, even though he wasn't religious. Um, and, and, and incredibly enough, these four planes were able to wreak enough mayhem in the, in the Egyptian column that they stopped their advance in order to regroup and consolidate. And that gave the Haganah time on the ground, or the Israeli army, I guess, by that time on the ground. And they were able to push back their advance in Tel Aviv. And the Egyptian army never got close to Tel Aviv again for the rest of the War of Independence. So that really turned the tide of the war. These four uh, planes, led by this Machal fighter, Lou Lennart, um, an incredible, incredible story. Um, and uh, and the... the uh, the the, 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 the the Egyptians were bombing Tel Aviv. There were dogfights over residential neighborhoods in Tel Aviv. Um, so Al Schwimmer decided he's going to use the B-17s that he had just purchased. On their way into Israel, he's already going to drop some bombs on Cairo. They tried to hit King Farouk's palace, but missed. They dropped bombs on, in Syria, on Damascus, just to let them know they're there. Remember, they only have three heavy bombers, the B-17s. Um, so it was a lot for a psychological effect. Um, and a lot of it was just to show that, you know, they're there. They're, they already have the formation of, of an air force. Um, yeah, now the, the, all, these, all these things that the Machal fighters were doing were completely illegal. Um, they, were, they, were, they were violating the Neutrality Act. They were violating the arms embargo. They were fighting under a foreign flag in a foreign uniform, swearing allegiance to a foreign army. They were involved in weapons smuggling. They were liable. The FBI was on their trail, the CIA. They, many of them were arrested when they returned to the United States, stood trial. Most of them were convicted, but they were not uh, jailed. They had to pay a $10,000 fine, which the Jewish agency covered, and they paid for their legal fees as well. And they, and they, and they, and they lost, many of them lost their rights. They were not able to vote and their civil rights um, for, until President Clinton pardoned a bunch of them in 2001. Um, uh, so like uh, they, so Al Schwimmer, I just want to mention a couple of their famous ones. I mentioned Al Schwimmer, who coordinated, he initiated and coordinated the whole uh, operation. Um, there was the guy Sam Lewis, who was the main pilot. He was able to fly any type of plane and train others to do so as well. And then there was this Lou Lennart. By the way, Sam Lewis and Lou Lennart stayed in Israel afterwards and used their aviation experience to create an Israel national airline. That airline is called El Al. So not only did they win the War of Independence, but the Machal fighters also built El Al, the Israeli national carrier, until today. Al Schwimmer, by the way, moved back to Israel in the 1950s, and he built what's called in Israel Tasia Avirit, one of the biggest companies in Israel until today, one of the most successful ones also. It's a government-owned company. Al Schwimmer was an engineer. Um, and it's the aviation industry company, which is a very, very successful and important company. It was one of the founders of the Savion neighborhood, a very wealthy, upscale neighborhood. He, um, um, he, uh, very interesting person. There was another guy, Harold Livingston, who was a radio operator and engineer. Later on, he was a, actually a screenwriter in Hollywood. He wrote part of Star Trek. He was also a novelist. There was a guy, Leon Frankel, George Lichter, Coleman Goltz. There was a guy, Gideon Lichtman, who was an American veteran of World War II, a fighter pilot. And he was the first Israeli Air Force pilot to down an Arab plane in history, an Egyptian fighter plane, 
one of the earliest engagements of the war. It was still in May 1948. Um, there was a, a Phil Mermelstein, Eichel was another one, also an American from New York, American bomber pilot during World War II. He decided to help out the Israeli Air Force when he heard from British pilot friends of his that he knew from the war that they were helping the Egyptians. He said if the British pilots are going to help the Egyptians, um, so he contacted Al Schwimmer and he said, I want to help out uh, Israel. Of course, there were British Jewish pilots who helped Israel uh, as well. There's a bunch of South Africans. Um, um, and um, I'm not going to go through all the names. <laughs> not so important, but there's a long list of names of amazing people. Um, there was a guy, Paul Shulman, who was a naval officer, and he's the founder of the Israeli Navy and its first commander. And Mickey Marcus, David Mickey Marcus, as I spoke about in an episode quite a few years ago, he was the, a general in the Israeli army. The first general of the Israeli army was actually killed mistakenly by friendly fire right outside what today is Telstone near Abu Ghosh. Um, there's a, a monument there, which I've, I've seen a few times. And he's buried in, he went back home. Moshe Dayan accompanied his body home. He's buried in West Point Cemetery, where he had graduated from. Mickey Marcus um, was, was Israeli, Israel's first general, and many, many others. Um, so what I find amazing about the story, not only what they did, but the irony of history here. World War II was the worst tragedy in human history. Um, besides for the Holocaust itself, of course, but just as a military conflict. Yet... Out of World War II, on one hand, came these Jewish experienced fighter pilots and other types of experienced combat officers and, and soldiers. And, and they were there. Now they have all this experience from World War II, and they're able to help at the right place at the right time to help the Jewish people again. World War II also produced Nazi weaponry, Nazi planes that was smuggled into Israel and used by the Israeli army. So... World War II and the Nazis were the worst things that ever happened to the Jewish people and were the worst things that ever happened to humanity. And yet, there are two small byproducts of World War II, experienced Jewish pilots and combat officers, and, on one hand, and Nazi weaponry that made it into Israel um, that saved the Jewish people and enabled for all these Holocaust survivors to move here and enabled to build the Israeli Air Force and the State of Israel and what it is to home to millions of Jews until today. So it's an irony of history that from all that terribleness of World War II, there's this thing that comes out in 1948 with the Machal fighters. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.